Volume 2, Chapter 3 of Guy Mannering. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Guy Mannering, or The Astrologer, by Sir Walter Scott. Volume 2, Chapter 3. A man may see how this world goes with no eyes. Look with thine ears. See how yon justice rails upon yon simple thief. Hark in thine ear, change places, and handy-dandy, which is the justice, which is the thief. King Lear Among those who took the most lively interest in endeavoring to discover the person by whom young Charles Hazelwood had been waylaid and wounded was Gilbert Glosson, Esquire, late writer in blank, now Laird of Langwin, in one of the worshipful commission of justices of the peace for the county of blank. His motives for exertion on this occasion were manifold. But we presume that our readers, from what they already know of this gentleman, will acquit him of being actuated by any zealous or intemperate love of abstract justice. The truth was that this respectable personage felt himself less at ease than he had expected after his machinations put him in possession of his benefactor's estate. His reflections within doors, where so much occurred to remind him of former times, were not always the self-congratulations of successful stratagem, and when he looked abroad he could not but be sensible that he was excluded from the society of the gentry of the county, to whose rank he conceived he had raised himself. He was not admitted to their clubs, and at meetings of a public nature, from which he could not be altogether excluded, he found himself thwarted and looked upon with coldness and contempt. Both principle and prejudice cooperated in creating this dislike. For the gentlemen of the county despised him for the lowness of his birth, while they hated him for the means by which he had raised his fortune. With the common people his reputation stood still worse. They would neither yield him the territorial appellation of Elanguin, nor the usual compliment of Mr. Glosson. With them he was bare Glossin, and so incredibly was his vanity interested by this trifling circumstance that he was known to give half a crown to a beggar because he had thrice called him a languin and beseeching him for a penny. He therefore felt acutely the general want of respect, and particularly when he contrasted his own character and reception in society with those of Mr. MacMorlan, who, in far inferior worldly circumstances, was beloved and respected both by rich and poor, and was slowly but securely laying the foundation of a moderate fortune with the general goodwill and esteem of all who knew him. Glossin, while he repined internally at what he would fain have called the prejudices and prepossessions of the country, was too wise to make any open complaint. He was sensible his elevation was too recent to be immediately forgotten, and the means by which he had attained it too odious to be soon forgiven. But time, thought he, diminishes wonder and palliates misconduct. With the dexterity, therefore, of one who made his fortune by studying the weak points of human nature— he determined to lie by for opportunities to make himself useful even to those who most disliked him. Trusting that his own abilities, the disposition of country gentlemen to get into quarrels, when a lawyer's advice becomes precious, and a thousand other contingencies of which, with patience and address, he doubted not to be able to avail himself, would soon place him in a more important and respectable light to his neighbors, and perhaps raise him to the eminence sometimes attained 
by a shrewd, worldly, bustling man of business when, settled among a generation of country gentlemen, he becomes, in Burns' language, the tongue of the trump to them. Uh. The attack on Colonel Mannering's house, followed by the accident of Hazelwood's wound, appeared to Glosson a proper opportunity to impress upon the country at large the service which could be rendered by an active magistrate for he had been in the commission for some time, well acquainted with the law, and no less so with the haunts and habits of the illicit traders. He had acquired the latter kind of experience by a former close alliance with some of the most desperate smugglers, in consequence of which he had occasionally acted, sometimes as a partner, sometimes as a legal adviser with these persons. But the connection had been dropped many years. Nor, considering how short the race of eminent characters of this description, and the frequent circumstances occur to make them retire from particular scenes of action, had he the least reason to think that his present researches could possibly compromise any old friend who might possess means of retaliation. The having been concerned in these practices abstractedly was a circumstance which, according to his opinion, ought in no respect to interfere with his now using his experience in behalf of the public, or rather to further his own private views. To acquire the good opinion and countenance of Colonel Mannering would be no small object to a gentleman who was much disposed to escape from Coventry, and to gain the favor of old Hazelwood, who was a leading man in the county, was of more importance still. Lastly, if he should succeed in discovering, apprehending, and convicting the culprit, he would have the satisfaction of mortifying, and in some degree disparaging, Macmorlan, to whom, as sheriff substitute of the county, this sort of investigation properly belonged and who would certainly suffer in public opinion should the voluntary exertions of Glosson be more successful than his own. Actuated by motives so stimulating and well acquainted with the lower retainers of the law, Glosson set every spring in motion to detect and apprehend, if possible, some of the gang who had attacked Woodburn, and more particularly the individual who had wounded Charles Hazelwood. He promised high rewards, he suggested various schemes, and used his personal interest among his old acquaintances who favored the trade, urging that they had better make sacrifice of an understrapper or two that incur the odium of having favored such atrocious proceedings. But for some time all these exertions were in vain. The common people of the country either favored or feared the smugglers too much to afford any evidence against them. At length this busy magistrate obtained information that a man, having the dress and appearance of the person who had wounded Hazelwood, had lodged on the evening before the recontra at the Gordon Arms in Kippeltringen. Thither Mr. Glosson immediately went, for the purpose of interrogating our old acquaintance, Mrs. McCandlish. The reader may remember that Mr. Glosson did not, according to this good woman's phrase, stand high in her books. She therefore attended his summons to the parlor slowly and reluctantly, and on entering the room paid her respects in the coldest possible manner. The dialogue then proceeded as follows. A fine frosty morning, Mrs. McCandlish. "'Aye, sir, the morning's veal enough,' answered the landlady dryly. "'Mrs. McCandlish, I wish to know if the justices are to dine here as usual after the business of the court on Tuesday?' "'I believe I, I fancy say, sir, as usual,' about to leave the room. "'Stay a moment, Mrs. McCandlish. Why, you are in a prodigious hurry, my good friend. I have been thinking a club dining here once a month would be a very pleasant thing.' "'Certainly, sir, a club of respectable gentlemen.' "'True, true,' said Glosson. "'I mean landed proprietors and gentlemen of weight in the county, "'and I should like to set such a thing a-going.' 
The short, dry cough with which Mrs. McCandlish received this proposal by no means indicated any dislike to the overture abstractedly considered, but inferred much doubt how far it would succeed under the auspices of the gentleman by whom it was proposed. It was not a cough negative, but a cough dubious, and as such Glosson felt it, but it was not his cue to take offense. "'Have there been brisk doings on the road, Mrs. McCandlish? Plenty of company, I suppose?' Pretty weel, sir, but I believe I am wanted at the bar. No, no, stop one moment. Cannot you to oblige an old customer? Pray, do you remember a remarkably tall young man who lodged one night in your house last week? Troth, sir, I cannot weel say. I never take heed whether my company be lang or short, if they make a lang bill. And if they do not, you can do that for them, eh, Mrs. McCandlish? <laughs> but this young man that I inquire after was upwards of six feet high, had a dark frock with metal buttons, light brown hair on powdered blue eyes, and a straight nose, travelled on foot, had no servant or baggage. You surely can remember having seen such a traveller? Indeed, sir, answered Mrs. McCandlish, bent on baffling his inquiries. I cannot charge my memory about the matter. There's mair to do in a house like this, I throw, than to look after passengers' air or their een or noses either. Then, Mrs. McCandlish, I must tell you in plain terms that this person is suspected of having been guilty of a crime, and it is in consequence of these suspicions that I, as a magistrate, require this information from you, and if you refuse to answer my questions, I must put you upon your oath. Troth, sir, I am no free to swear. Footnote. Some of the stricted dissenters declined taking an oath before a civil magistrate. We are get to the Enterburger meeting. It's very true in Bailey McCandlish's time, honest man, we keep at the kirk. Wilk was most seemly in his station as having office. But after his being called to a better place than Kippeltringen, I again back to worthy Maister McRainer, and so ye see, sir, I am no clear to swear without speaking to the minister, especially against any sackless, queer young thing that's gone through the country, stranger and friendless like. I shall relieve your scruples, perhaps, without troubling Mr. McGrainer, when I tell you that this fellow whom I, I inquire— I shall relieve your scruples, perhaps, without troubling Mr. McGrainer, when I tell you that this fellow whom I inquire after is the man who shot your young friend Charles Hazelwood. Goodness! What could have thought the like of that of him? Now, if it been for that, or even for a bit twilsy with a gauger, the deal o' Nelly McCandlish's tongue should ever have wronged him. I cannot think it a seducer, lad. Na, na, this is just some of your old skits. Ye'll be for having a horning or a caption after him. I see you have no confidence in me, Mrs. McCandlish, but look at these declarations signed by the persons who saw the crime committed, and judge yourself if the description of the ruffian be not that of your guest. He put the papers into her hand, which she perused very carefully often taking off her spectacles to cast her eyes up to heaven, or perhaps to wipe a tear from them, for young Hazelwood was an especial favorite with the good dame. A wheel, a wheel, she said, when she had concluded her examination. Since it's end, say, I give him up the villain, but oh, we are erring mortals. I never saw a face I liked better or a lad that was mere douce and canny. I thought he had been some... Gentlemen under trouble, but I give him up, the villain, to shoot Charles Hazelwood, and before the young ladies, poor innocent things, I give him up. So you admit, then, that such a person lodged here the night before this vile business? 
troth dead sir and uh the house were tain with him he was sick a frank pleasant young man it wasn't for his spending i'm sure for he just had a mutton chop and a mug of ale and maybe a glass or twa wine and i asked him to drink tea with missel and didn't i put that into the bill and he took nae supper for he said he was defeat with travel uh, the night before i dare say now it had been on some helicat errand or other did you by any chance learn his name i wot will did i said the landlady now as eager to communicate her evidence as formerly desirous to suppress it he told me his name was brown and he said it was likely an old woman like a gypsy wife might be asking for him ay ay tell me your company and i'll tell you why you are oh the villain a wheel sir when he gaed away in the morning he paid his bill very honestly and gave something to the chambermaid no doubt for grizzy had nothing fry me by twa pair a new shoe ilk a year and maybe a bit compliment at hansel monday here glosson found it necessary to interfere and bring the good woman back to the point oh then he just said if there comes such a person to inquire after mr brown you will say i'm gone to look at the skaters on loch Cairan, as you call it and i will be back here to dinner but he never came back though i expected him say faithfully that i gave a look to making the friar's chicken myself and to the crappit heads too and that's what i didn't do for ordinary mr glosson but little did i think what skating wark he was gown about to shoot mr charles the innocent lamb mr glosson having like a prudent examinator suffered his witness to give vent to all her surprise and indignation now began to inquire whether the suspected person had left any property or papers about the inn trothy put a parcel a small parcel under my charge and he gave me some siller and desired me to get him half a dozen ruffled sarks and peg pasley's in hands with them ain now they may serve him to gang up the land market footnote the procession of the criminals to the gallows of old took that direction moving as a schoolboy rhyme had it up the lawn market down the west bow up the gang letter and down the little toe in the scoundrel mr glosson then demanded to see the packet mr glosson then demanded to see the packet but here mine hostess demurred she didna ken she would not say what justice should take its course but when a thing was trusted to ain in her way doubtless they were responsible but she sold cry in deacon bearcliff and if mr glosson liked to tuck an inventory of the property and give her a receipt before the deacon or what she wad like muckle better and it could be sealed up and left in deacon bearcliff's hands it would make her mind easy she was for nothing but justice on her sides mrs mccandlish's natural sagacity and acquired suspicion being inflexible glosson sent for deacon bearcliff to speak anent the villain that had shot mr charles hazelwood the deacon accordingly made his appearance with his wig awry owing to the hurry with which at the summons of the justice exchanged it for the kilmarnock cap in which he usually attended his customers mrs mccandlish then produced the parcel deposited with her by brown in which was found the gypsy's purse on perceiving the value of the miscellaneous contents mrs mccandlish internally congratulated herself upon the precautions she had taken before delivering them up to glosson while he with an appearance of disinterested candor was the first to propose they should be properly inventoried and deposited with deacon bearcliff until they should be sent to the crown office he did not he observed like to be personally responsible for articles 
which seemed of considerable value, and had doubtless been acquired by the most nefarious practices. He then examined the paper in which the purse had been wrapped. It was the back of a letter addressed to V. Brown, Esquire, but the rest of the address was torn away. The landlady, now as eager to throw light upon the criminal's escape as she had formerly been desirous of withholding it, for the miscellaneous contents of the purse argued strongly to her mind that all was not right, Mrs. McCandlish, I say, now gave Glosson to understand, Mrs. McCandlish, I say, now gave Glosson to understand that her position at Hostler had both seen the stranger upon the ice that day when young Hazelwood was wounded. Our reader's old acquaintance, Jock Jabos, was first summoned, and admitted frankly that he had seen and conversed upon the ice that morning with a stranger, who, he understood, had lodged at the Gordon Arms the night before. "'What turn did your conversation take?' said Glosson. "'Turn? Oh, we turned negate at, uh, but just keep it straightforward upon the ice-like.' "'Well, but what did ye speak about?' "'Oh, he just asked questions like, "'Only as a stranger,' answered the postillion, "'possessed, as it seemed, "'with the refractory and uncommunicative spirit "'which had left his mistress. "'But what about?' said Glosson. "'Oh, just about the folk that was playing at the curling, "'and about old Jock Stevenson that was at the cock, "'and about the ladies and sick-like.' "'What ladies, and what did he ask about them, Jock?' said the interrogator. "'What ladies? Oh, well, it was Miss Jowlia Mannering and Miss Lucy Bertram that ye can for weed yourself, Mr. Glosson. They were walking with the young laird of Hazelwood upon the ice.' "'And what did you tell him about them?' demanded Glosson. "'Tut, we just said that there was Miss Lucy Bertram of Langwin.' that should have had a great estate in the country, and that was Miss Jowlia Mannering that was to be married to young Hazelwood. See, as she was hanging on his arm, we just spoke about our country clashes like he was a very frank man. Well, and what did he say in answer? Oh, he just stared at the young ladies very keen-like and asked if it was for certain that the marriage was to be between Miss Mannering and young Hazelwood. And I answered him that it was for positive and absolute certain, as I had an undoubted right to say, sir. For my third cousin, Jen Clavers, she's a relation of your own, Mr. Glosson. Ye would ken Jean Langsyne? She's sib to the housekeeper at Woodbourne, and she's telling me mair than ants that there was nothing could be mair likely. And what did the stranger say when you told him all this? said Glosson. Say, echoed the postillion, he say nothing at her. He just stared at them as they walked around the loch upon the ice as if he could have eaten them, and then he never took his e off at them. I said another word, or gave another glance at the bonspiel, though there was the finest fun among the carolers ever was seen, and he turned round and get off the loch by the kirk style through woodborne fir plantings, and we saw no matter of him. Only think, said Mrs. McCandlish, what a hard heart he mun ha had to think of hearting the poor young gentleman in the very presence of the lady he was to be married to. Oh, Mrs. McCandlish, said Mr. Oh, Mrs. McCandlish. Oh, Mrs. McCandlish, said Glosson. There's been many cases such as that on the record. Doubtless he was seeking revenge where it would be deepest and sweetest. God pity us, said Deacon Bearcliff. We're poor, frail creatures when left to ourselves. 
I forgot what said. Vengeance is mine and I will repay it. Weel, weel, sirs, said Jabos, whose hard-headed and uncultivated shrewdness seemed sometimes to start the game when others beat the bush. Weel, weel, ye may be a mistake yet. I'll never believe that a man would lay a plan to shoot another with a zane gun. Lord help ye, I was the keeper's assistant down at the isle myself, and I'll uphold it the biggest man in Scotland shouldn't uh, take a gun fry me or I'd wise the slugs through him. Though I'm but sick, a little feckless bod, fit for naething but the outside uh, saddle in the foreign uh, poche. Nah, nah, nay, living man, what venture on that? I'll wad my best buckskins, and they were new coughed at Kirk Kilbright Fair. It's been a chance job after. But if ye ain't nothing mare to say to me, I am thinking I'm on gong and see my beasts fed. And he departed accordingly. The hostler who had accompanied him gave evidence to the same purpose. He and Mrs. McCandlish were then reinterrogated whether Brown had no arms with him on that unhappy morning. None, they said, but an ordinary bit cutlass or hanger by his side. Now, said the deacon, taking Glosson by the button, for in considering this intricate subject he had forgot Glosson's new accession of rank, this is but doubtful after a Maester Gilbert, for it was not say dooms likely that he would go down into battle with six ma means. Glosson extricated himself from the deacon's grasp and from the discussion, though not with rudeness, for it was his present interest to buy golden opinions from all sorts of people. He inquired the price of tea and sugar and spoke of providing himself for the year. He gave Mrs. McCandlish directions to have a handsome entertainment in readiness for a party of five friends whom he intended to invite to dine with him at the Gordon Arms next Saturday week. And lastly, he gave a half-crown to Jock Jabos, whom the hostler had deputed to hold his steed. Weel, said the deacon to Mrs. McCandlish, as he accepted her offer of a glass of bitters at the bar. The dales no sale as he cad. It's pleasant to see a gentleman pay the regard to the business of the country that Mr. Glosson does. Aye, deed is, deacon, answered the landlady. And yet I wonder our gentry leave their and work to the like him. But as lang as sills current, deacon, folk mana look or nicely at what king's eds on it. I doubt Glasson will prove but shand after a mistress, said Jabos, as he passed through the little lobby beside the bar. But this is a good half-crown anyway. End of Volume 2, Chapter 3 Recording by Ryan Bissett.